not studied the attention revolution, uh, my book, or the text from which that's based, uh, pertaining to the nine stages of attentional development leading up to shamatha. Helpful to know that that's, uh, that whole path, these nine stages, is quite strongly highlighted uh, in presentations of shamatha that are really coming from a developmental orientation. For example, you see not only Tsongkhapa, but other great Tibetan scholars who are giving a presentation of shamatha by way of generating a mental image. It's a very developmental. Right? And so mapping onto that method of generating something that's not there and then gradually developing stability, vividness to higher, higher levels up to shamatha, then those nine stages are mapped onto that. So it's clearly very developmental, step by step by step. Um, the question is raised, well, is this only in the Mahayana literature or Tibetan Buddhist literature, or do you find it elsewhere? And happily, somebody, a friend of mine, did some research on that. And among those nine stages, you find stages one, two, eight, and nine in the Pali Canon, in a discourse called the Mahasunyata Sutta. And then if you look at the Sanskrit version, this is technical, in the Mula Savastavada tradition, called the Mahasunyata Sutra, then those, then all nine stages are there. So in the Pali Canon, only four, one, two, and eight, and nine. But on the base of the Sanskrit Sutra, then the Tibetans on that basis then, or first the Indians, in the Yogacara, Yogacara, the philosophical school of Yogacara, then they really elaborate on these nine stages, and then many of the great pundits and scholars of Tibet <coughs> elaborated on them as well. So they're primarily known nowadays in the Tibetan tradition. So enough of that. But that's a little bit of context for those who are interested in historical and, and a scholarly background and context for that, for that map. But now when we come to this method, the settling the mind in practice, this one that's so strongly emphasized in the Mahamudra and Dzogchen traditions, now by the very nature of the context, this is not nearly so much developmental, much more of a discovery orientation, not of developing these qualities so much as discovering them as you are moving towards the discovery and not the development of your own Buddha nature, pristine awareness. So Dzogchen and Mahamudra are really classic like the Zen tradition, the Chan tradition, much more a matter of discovery, of sudden awakening, of revealing that which is already there, rather than so much generating that which isn't. So they're two sides of the same coin. It is, I think, really a profound, profound error to think one is correct and the other one's incorrect. They're looking at the same reality from two, two different perspectives. But now if we hone in on this practice, which I really just call settling the mind in its natural state, I'll now refer to a text that I've really become very enamored with. Uh, it's a very short, just a 10-page mind treasure of Yujun Lingma, uh, probably the shortest of the mind treasures, and I won't elaborate on that right now, of Yujun Lingma pertaining to Dzogchen. It's called the Sharp Vajra of Conscious Awareness Tantra. Only 10 pages. Happily, he wrote a 100-page commentary to it that really illuminates it, makes it very clear. But in this text, uh, that lays out the entire path to enlightenment from, from the beginning to the end in seven stages, and he compacted that all into ten pages. So it's like a extremely high-density, super-compact disc. You know, and then he, un, then he unpacks it with his commentary. 
the first of the seven phases of maturation through this um, is taking the impure mind as the path. And you might recall from a day or two ago that this is synonymous with the shamatha practice of studying mindfulness in the Sutta. But now, as, as is so often the case in the Mahamudra, the Dzogchen approaches to shamatha, they don't tend to strongly emphasize or possibly not even mention those nine stages, which are so characteristic of a developmental approach, but rather with this, this, this discovery orientation or approach to the practice in this one tantra, that I'll just call it now the Sharpadra Tantra, which I've, come, I've translated together with this commentary and just submitted, just recently submitted to a publisher. Uh, in this text, he lays out just five kind of benchmarks. And again, one could say they are stages of development. Um, but it's simpler and it's very radical. And I want to share with you, without going into the whole discourse, I want to share with you now just the first out of five. Just the first, because that's really relevant right now and for this phase of the practice uh, that we'll go into experientially in just a moment. And the first phase is experientially distinguishing between stillness and movement as you attend to the space of the mind in this context. Just now. And that is, as you're focusing, are you aware within that space seems to be still? That is no activity. It's just empty. Nothing happening. And then when something does happen, whether it's the emergence of a discursive thought, a mental image, some emotion surging up, a desire arising, those are all like actions, movements. In the Pali language, are called javan, the activities, the kind of the kinetic energy of the mind. But there are intervals. There are intervals between, for example, these thoughts and images. And as closely as you attend to the mind, you're not seeing any activity. It's just space. It seems to be inactive. So that's the first benchmark. First benchmark. It's not something to look ahead to, like wondering, oh, how many weeks will it take? How long will it take? You know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? You know, this discovery approach to shamatha, especially to settling the mind in its natural state, is not inviting you to look ahead. It's saying, right here, right now, can you or can you not distinguish between these two modes, mind in motion, mind still? Don't think about achieving it later. Right now, do you get it? Can you distinguish that? That's the first benchmark. So in this practice, in this third phase, in this cycle, the ten approaches to shamatha, then we will be attending to so-called the foreground of the mind. If you liken the mind to a stage in which actors come and go, we'll be attending, first of all, to the foreground, the thoughts, the images that arise. We're noting the activity, the motion, the movement of the mind. But then we'll also attend to the intervals, or one could say, the stage itself, the background, the space of the mind that is still. So attending to the motion, the activities of the mind, and the stillness of the space of the mind, and seeking experientially to draw a clear distinction, motion, stillness, first benchmark. Okay? Sound like fun? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Shadowy body in its natural state, a respiration in its natural rhythm. A little while longer stirs the mind, your mind has a rhythm. You count it, you might adopt it. Let your eyes be at least partially open. And rest your gaze vacantly on the space in front of you without deliberately attending to any visual object in the shape of familiar enough with this practice that you can direct your attempt to focus your attention on the space of the mind and its contents, then do that. If you are new to the practice and you find it helpful, it's a preliminary to live to deliberately generate a discursive thought or a mental image. Focus on this mental event, single-pointed. Allow it to fade back into the space of the mind. 
while keeping your attention right where it's focused. So you found your target area. You've placed your attention in the space beneath. And now be ready. Poised. To observe the next thought or image that arises in the space of the And whatever arises, simply observe its nature. Without preference, without seeking to modify it in any way. Sustain the flow of your mindfulness. Without distraction.
planets make special note of the intervals between the planets. Those space-time intervals where nothing seems to be happening in the space of the mind. Just quiet, still. This is not a time to space out, but rather to attend even more closely carefully observe that space of the mind that is most evident during the intervals between these discernible activities of the mind, the movements of thoughts and images. As you attend closely during these intervals, note, are you merely observing nothing? Is there nothing to see? Are you merely drawing a blank? Or can you actually observe the space of the mind? Something that does exist and therefore has characteristics. The space of the mind. Is it three-dimensional or is it flat? Is it black? Does it have any color or is it transparent? The space of the mind, does it have a center and a periphery? Does it have a location in front of you, above you, or anywhere else? 
because they have a shape. They're a size. How big is your hand? The space of the mind is always, in fact, present, almost evident during the intervals between thoughts. It is always present. It is the space out of which thoughts emerge, in which they are present, and into which they eventually dissolve. A little while focused primarily on the background of the mind, the stage itself, the space of the mind. to the best of your ability to stay in this flow of mindfulness, without distraction, without grasping. To the space of the mind and whatever arises within that space, to the stage of the mind and to the players who come and go. clearly distinguish between motion and stillness within this domain of mental experience.
always monitor the flow of mindfulness, give your faculties introspection. And when you see you've been carried away by thought, or distracted in any way, relax, release, and return. If with your faculty of introspection you note that you've become spaced out, vague, dull, you may deliberately generate a thought or image and thereby crystallize, focus your attention. Or you may simply freshly arouse your interest in the practice and focus clearly, single-pointedly on the space of the mind, and on whatever is arising right now. Let's continue practicing in silence.
Oh, lasso. So I'm going to try to make my responses more succinct. Yesterday, I know I went, went quite a long time when I discussed samadhi and maybe more theory and more abstraction that people were interested in. Uh, but I do want to start with this very important point. And that is when you're right in the midst of, you're on the cushion, engaging in the practice of settling the mind in its natural state. It's very important just to set aside, put out of your mind, all concepts of progress, all notions of stage one, three, four, where am I, how far have I progressed, where am I, forget it, completely banish that. That's good before the session, it may be good after the session, but not during the session. During the session, don't think about achieving anything. It really will be a distraction. It will throw you off. It will deter. It will contaminate, undermine your practice. I've been told this many times because it's been a hard lesson for me to learn. Also, when I was training in mindfulness of breathing under the marvelous Sri Lankan master, Balagoda Andanamaitreya, he was my primary teacher. When he was teaching me mindfulness of breathing, and he gave me instruction, and I would tell him, okay, I'll try. And he said, no, no, don't try, just do it. So don't have this notion of, I'm trying to achieve something I haven't achieved. When you're doing it, just right there in that millisecond, boom, just do it. And that's how you achieve. So as the Tibetans say, what are you doing? I'm accomplishing shamatha. Right now, in this moment, I'm accomplishing it. I'm not worrying about when I'll accomplish it. I am accomplishing it. I'm a work in progress. So for this practice, it's quite a clear criterion. Are you practicing correctly or not? And the phrase I love, I hope it can be as useful to you as it's been to me. Two phrases. They're synonymous, but they come in a little bit different nuance. Is awareness holding its own ground? Is awareness resting in its own place? Those are the two phrases for which I've just translated both of them from Tibetan. Awareness holding its own ground means it's not moving. It's like that kestrel hovering in midair, stationary with respect to the ground, while the breeze is coming and going and going this way and that way and strong and weak and so forth, but the kestrel is metaphorically holding its own ground in midair. Right. Not moving. So similarly, when your awareness is holding its own ground, it's not slipping off to the past, slipping forward to some imaginary future. It's not getting caught up in this thought or latching onto fusing with that image. Holding its own ground in stillness, clear, cognizant, and not moving. Your awareness is not moving. Holding its own ground, it's resting in its own place. It's so similar to being still in a lucid dream. To be dreaming and know you're dreaming, and while maintaining that awareness of the dream as the dream, just being still and being aware of the whole drama. This is happening, and these people, and these people are fighting, and these are friendly, and this is going, and here's a volcano, and here's this, and here's a car driving by, and all these activities... But you're seeing they're all just the comings and goings of the mind. You're recognizing them for what they are, and in the midst of it, you are still. You're not caught in the drama. You're not hoping the dream will turn out this way and not that way. You're not desiring. 
you're not averse to anything that happens in the dream. After all, it's just a dream. And you are the dreamer. You're awake, even while you are dreaming. And so as you are recognizing the dream as the dream, which is exactly what we don't do when we're not lucid, we're taking the dream to be reality, waking reality, the real deal. And that's why we get into all the emotional responses, because we're deluded. right? So just as lucid dreaming entails recognizing the dream as the dream, likewise here in the waking state, we're recognizing mental events as mental events. In the perceived, let there be just the perceived, without assuming it's anything else, projecting it as being something else, like, oh, reality, outside of the reality of your own mind. So when you're right there in the midst of the practice, just let your awareness hold its own ground, resting in its own place. And sometimes you'll attend to the activities of the mind, and sometimes there'll be stillness. But as you then apply introspection, not only monitoring the space of the mind and the events arising in that space, introspectively, monitoring your own attention, your own mindfulness, your own awareness, then you will recognize sometimes your awareness is in motion. When you get caught up in grasping, now you're going off, oh, there you go again. Off on a lark, off on a trip, carried away by that thought. Oh, your awareness is in motion. You've just become non-lucid, because now your awareness is fused with the thought. Psychologists call it cognitive fusion. Very good term. But now you're in motion. Your mind is in motion, your awareness is in motion. And then you wake up. You wake up, you come, you come to your senses, and you recognize retrospectively, oh, I just lost my mind. I was kidnapped. I was thrown in the, in the boot, or in, in America we call it, in the trunk. I was thrown in the trunk and driven away. They abducted me. But then you finally get out, oh, there's a car that just abducted me. Retrospectively, you recognize, ah, I was in motion, but now I'm home again. And now you recognize, oh yes, home sweet home. Here's where I can be still. So you recognize not only the activities and the stillness of the space of the mind and what's taking place in that space, but you also recognize introspectively the stillness and the motion of your own awareness. Right? That's stage one. That's the first benchmark. And it's not something to wait, oh, how long, how long do I have to wait before I achieve that? No, achieve it right now. I mean, I, I mean actually right now. And if you can do it, you can do it. And then you're off. Then you're starting. Okay? But when you're doing the practice, just do it. Just let your awareness hold its own ground as thoughts come and go, come and go. The winds of thoughts, images, emotions, and desires rise up and flow past. But you're not carried away by that current. And just doing that which is really not doing much of anything. It's more like just being aware rather than doing anything. Being aware non-reactively, cognizantly, discerningly, clearly. Being aware of whatever is arising and passing in the mind, aware of just the space of the mind when there's no movement. Just being aware in that fashion. That's accomplishing shamatha. And don't do anything more. Don't compound it. Don't make it complicated. 
Don't get fancy. And don't start wondering, oh, how fast am I progressing? You're not progressing at all. Forget about it. You are accomplishing shamatha. So imagine if you were, if you can imagine, can you imagine being a, a glowing ember, like from a hot coal stove, and you p- pick out one really absolutely red, red-hot burning coal? Try to imagine being a red-hot burning coal. Pick it up with, with tonsors, like that. And then imagine putting that right on top of a mound of snow. You're the, you're the glowing ember, right? And put it right on top of a mound of snow, like a little pyramid of snow. And put it right on top. Okay? What does the glowing ember of coal need to do to get to the bottom of the snowbank? Nothing. Don't move. <laughs> Just be hot. Just be luminous. And you will melt your way right down to the bottom. Or the bottom will rise up to meet you, whichever way you like. Right? So take that glowing ember of your own awareness and just don't move. Don't get caught up. Don't go on the trips. Just don't move. And then watch your awareness come and settle in its natural state. That's called settling the mind, its natural state. That glowing ember of your own mind settles in its natural state and it does so, it melts into the substrate consciousness. Which was already there. So you're not achieving something, you're not gaining something you didn't already have. You're revealing something that was already there, but obscured by grasping, by distraction, by dullness, by all the activities of mind. And now there's this disillusion into the substrate consciousness, and then welcome home. Because your mind is now settled in its natural state, the ground state from which it emerges into dreams, it emerges into the waking state, emerges into all manner of activities of the mind. Here it is, resting in the substrate consciousness, kind of resting in a state of pure potential, just ready to be tweaked, ready to be catalyzed, to break that symmetry of just the sheer vacuity of the substrate and the consciousness of that substrate, namely substrate consciousness, just is waiting to be tweaked until that symmetry, that homogeneity of the substrate consciousness That symmetry is broken, is activated, and then suddenly activity is there. A dream, perceptions, thoughts, memories, fantasies, and so forth. Okay? So, that was a lot of words, but the practice is actually very simple. Okay? Hola, so. So, I'm going to go back and forth now. We have a good 40 minutes. I'm going to go back and forth. I'm going to start here, and then we'll go out there. Okay? And I'll try to be, I'm going to go what I'm going to do, because I like to be as impartial as I can. I'm going to go left hemisphere, right hemisphere, left hemisphere, right hemisphere for the questions, okay? Okay, here's the first question. Okay, here's something uh, environmental, and it is a, a worthy question. So I'd like everyone to attend, because this is a matter, actually, of of courtesy and sensitivity, that we're not in totally solitary retreat here. We are actually in a retreat center, and we have neighbors, and our walls are thin, and there are a lot of doors there. So here's the the comment. Uh, Every time one of the retreatants who is staying next door to my room goes in and out 
of his or her room. So it's very nice. This is all anonymous, so there's no fingers being pointed here. He or she slams the door. Or the doors close by themselves, right? I think they do. And so then, boom, clunk, clunk. This has already happened countless times, even after 9 p.m. The sudden noise has disturbed my sleep and concentration while I'm in med meditation or reading. Uh, I'm, I'm going to interject right there. Um, there's a real easy way around that. And, if we, and this is part of our mindfulness practice and also our loving-kindness practice of sensitivity and respect for our neighbors here. And that is that when you close the door, you actually, I can think you can turn the knob and then you can close it and so it doesn't slam and it doesn't go click, click. You just turn it and then you can close it silently. So there's a very nice exercise in mindfulness. It's called, and I'll, I'm going to give a little tiny teaching, pardon me, but there are different types of mindfulness. I think I've mentioned them in the past. Retrospective mindfulness, and that is memory. For example, remembering the instructions when you're engaging in the practice. So it's very useful, that type of mindfulness, retrospective mindfulness, without which you can't practice vipassana or shamatha or any, anything else because you will have forgotten the instructions. Right? So there's retrospective mindfulness, there's present-centered mindfulness, as in mindfulness of the sensations right now, or the passage of the in and out breath, mindfulness right now, whatever is arising in the space of the mind. So that's very much shamatha-style mindfulness. But there's also prospective, prospective mindfulness. And this is where we're looking ahead and remembering to do something that hasn't yet occurred, but when we encounter the situation, we remember to do something. Okay? Now, we ex exercise prospective mindfulness many, many times in ordinary daily life. Right? When you leave a room, do you turn off the light? Often we do. Why? Because we remember, oh, when I do that, I should turn off the light. I want to burn off electricity for no reason. And so, likewise, here's a nice prospective memory exercise for all of us here. I include myself. I'm living there, too. And that is whenever you're closing the door, try to do it as quietly as possible. Turn the knob, close it quietly, so that you know, we be as, create as little ripple effect as possible in the environment. I'll read the rest. That was my interjection. Here's the question. What attitude might be more beneficial and desirable to let this person know he or she is disturbing someone else by not being mindful enough while opening and closing the door? Or should I remain silent and practice trying to let go of the irritation for having been disturbed by a careless noise? It's a very good question. And the answer is both. Both. So I'm happy to be your ally here, as we're all allies. I'm not siding with you against anybody else, because I don't know who wrote the note, and there's no need for me to know, or who that other person is. No need to know that either. We're all both people. Right? We're all both people. So if we can all simply be mindful in this regard, that's to everyone's benefit. Uh, and should the problem persist, that your neighbor's prospective mindfulness capacity is maybe not manifesting that well, then in a very friendly fashion, as a spiritual friend, make a request. Okay? Just make a request. And it can be done in a friendly way, a constructive way, without being abrasive or hostile or anything like that. But why not? Why not? Just make the suggestion, make the request. And then hopefully it will be well received in the warm-hearted spirit in which it's offered. And everybody's happy because the person you've just made that content to, now that person's mindfulness practice will be enhanced. And you'll have quiet in your room. Win-win.
Okay. So I'm going to go left hemisphere, right hemisphere. We'll start with Don. And the microphone, thank you, Alma, is coming. The system is working again, Danny? Ah, very good. Don. Yes, Don. Uh, I have a question about this practice you just gave. Right. That is uh, the sitting in the stillness of the space of the mind. Uh, you did warn us that it is on the threshold of the pasana. Mm -hmm. And uh, rather than sitting in the stillness, you added a series of questions. I did. You know, where is it? What color is it? Does it have a center? Right. Um, I found those very fruitful, uh, but I wasn't sitting in the stillness. That's right. I was, I was uh, questioning the stillness. That's javana. That's activity of the mind. You're right. Yeah. And, and I, had, I had never heard you go that far with that, mm -hmm. uh, but I did find it useful to keep me in the space. Mm -hmm. Very good. If my turf, I'm just going to be a little bit playful here, if my turf was shamatha and somebody else's turf was vipassana, that person could say, Dallin, you are definitely encroaching on my turf. Keep out. Keep, stay over on your shamatha side, because you definitely encroached on our vipassana territory there. Right. And they would be right. They'd be right. As soon as we're posing questions about the nature of the object that we're attending to, We've definitely slipped over to Vipassana. If all we're doing is just attending with bare attention, frankly, that's not risen to the level of Vipassana, not as the Buddha taught it. It's just bare attention, unless you're a Bahia. There's always the Bahia clause, you know. If you're that ripe, then bare attention may be enough. Great. But, you know, for the rest of it, it's not really Vipassana. It's kind of preliminary as some aspect of shamatha. So why did I do it? Well, number one, of course, as you found, it can be beneficial but here's more why, because I'm not really already trying to jump into Vipassana. Because this overall really is about shamatha. But the, here's the point. And that is, a number of people have already found, while doing this practice, even from a very early stage, that while attending to the space of the mind and its contents, getting very focused there, many people find thoughts just vanish. You know, when you're, when you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, they're just piling in. You know, it's like relatives coming over for Christmas. You know. They all want presents, you know. And then, as soon as you say, okay, okay, I'll attend to you. You're really calling on my attention when I was practicing my breathing. So now I'll give you my full attention. They all disappear as if they owe you money. <laughs> it's very common. And so then what do you do? He said, I'm trying to settle my mind as natural state, and they don't want to come out and play. I want to observe the thoughts and see how they arise, and observe them, observe the nature, and blah, blah, blah. And they're all saying, they don't want to come out and play. What's up? And so when you're sitting there, and you're just tending, and nothing's happening, then it's very easy just to space out. Say, I was, I was all ready to observe the thoughts and images, just like the great masters of the past have told me to do. But there weren't any, so I'll wait. And you may wait a long time, because they're so shy, these thoughts. When you really take an interest in them, then they kind of fade back my favorite images, like cockroaches going under the refrigerator when you turn on the light. 
they're very happy to scamper all over the place when the light's off. But as soon as you turn the light's off, who, us, you know? They don't want to be observed. So when you're attending there to the space of the mind and you're just not getting anything, there's no thoughts, you can't, you can't discern anything there, then recognize what is there and what's left over. It's like going to a playhouse and there's a stage and nobody's on the stage. The actors haven't showed up yet. Then look at the stage. The stage is not nothing. And I will just say, I'll give away the plot, the space of the mind is not nothing. It's not a sheer absence of anything, in which case, then it would have no characteristics, because nothing, and you're a philosopher, I have to be careful here, but something that doesn't exist at all has no characteristics. Right? But the space of the mind does exist. And as an analogy, because it's not that abstract, it's not so highfalutin, is right now, we're aware of, if we bring our attention to the visual field, as I'm attending over in your direction, I can see the colors and the shape of your shirt. Right? There they are. But as I'm attending your direction, you're about probably 15 feet away. I'm also aware, right now, anybody can be, I think we all are, if we have two eyes, and we can see three-dimensionally, we have spatial perception, I'm not only aware of the colors arising in the space, but now I'm going to just shift my focus. This is so ordinary. I'm going to shift the focus, my visual attention, away from your shirt to the space in between. And now I'm aware of the visual space, the space in which these colors and shapes arise. But that visual space has no color, but it is three-dimensional. It doesn't have a shape. It's transparent. So I'm talking about the qualities of the space that I'm perceiving right now. I'm not imagining that or making it up or being, you know, just entering into philosophical conjecture there. I'm reporting what I'm seeing. And there's nothing special about that, right? Well, likewise, really, there's nothing all that special about the space of the mind. That also is a domain of experience in which events arise. And so why did I give all those questions is to arouse the interest, the curiosity, to sharpen the discernment so that when you're attending closely, you see, oh, well, number one, is the space of the mind flat, like a, like a cinema screen? Or is it three-dimensional? That's kind of obvious. It's not flat. It is three-dimensional. So we already have one characteristic. Is it transparent? Or is it not transparent? It's kind of obvious. It's transparent. And so I pose one question and after another, so you can kind of get a lock. Kind of get a lock on this phenomenon that is the space of the mind. That there is something to clear and distinct to attend to. It has in a number of characteristics so that the next time you look for it, you'll be able to find it quite quickly, right? And so that's why. So the first time, so I won't, I won't as I'm teaching that again and again, I won't keep on posing those questions as if we're supposed to probe into see whether it has inherent nature and so forth, whether is it I or is it mine and so forth and so on, but rather I just gave those more purely phenomenological questions. Center, periphery, color, shape, size, so just so that one is attending there, one can have that sense, oh, I'm now attending the space of the mind. I know some of its characteristics. I know enough of them so that even if no events are rising in the space of the mind, I still am attending to something. And here's a crucial point. I'm still maintaining a flow of knowing, a flow of knowing. I'm not just sitting there now 
unknowing because I don't have an object. I'm just kind of waiting to know something. Because no, I'm knowing something right now. It's called the space of the mind. You get one follow-up. So, so um, should I regard them as, in, in this case, training wheels? That's right. Or as extra gears? Training wheels. Very good. Nice, succinct question, and I will give six succinct answers. For the time being, these are trainer, training wheels. It's kind of questions enough so that you can mindfully engage with that object. Right? Now, later on, if you start engaging in the practice of Vipassana, like in the Mahamudra tradition, which you're familiar with. So, Mahamudra Vipassana. Mahamudra Vipassana. Well, that's just full of questions. You've seen it. Kamachakme, many of the great Mahamudra masters, Dzogchen masters also. They are posing questions to the mind, the space of the mind, and they want answers. And in an ideal setting, we're in a very good setting, but an ideal setting would be we'd, we'd have this place, it would all be, how do you say, maintained by dakinis who don't need to be paid, and we could stay here for years and then just practice shamatha, vipassana, tekchu, turkel, and achieve rainbow body right here. you know. And we'd be meeting regularly, and I'd be posing these questions as we moved into vipassana, and then from day to day, week to week, then you'd go back, and I'd pose another question, go back, and boom, there we are. That's the ideal setting. It's called a monastery. A really good monastery where people actually practice and don't just do the ritual facsimiles of practice. And so, but we don't have that ideal yet. Maybe one day there will be a network of contemplative observatories around the world, and then we approach that ideal. This is ideal for what we're doing, or it's pretty close for an eight-week retreat. Um, but for the time being, as you said, training wheels. Okay? Later on, move into that big time, and then we're making a full expedition into Vipassana territory. Okay? Good. Time for another que a written question, and then I'll go over here to the right. Okay. We're doing okay here. During the meditative cultivation of compassion, uh, um, focused on blatant suffering, I'm just going to make a, a small caveat here. And pardon me if I just sound like a scholar. I am a scholar, but I'm not just doing this as a scholar. And that, but it's an important point. And that is when we're engaging in meditative cultivation of loving kindness or compassion, these two. It's important to know that there's a correct answer to what is the object of meditation? What is the object of mindfulness? It's important to get that right, and it's easy to get it wrong. Okay? And the object of mindfulness, that which we're attending to, so we'll just stick with compassion, but it's the same thing for loving-kindness. I'm going to say for loving-kindness. In the cultivation of loving-kindness, your object is not loving-kindness. That's why I never use the word, we're meditating on loving-kindness. Because that would be, oh, I'm going to generate some loving-kindness and then focus on that. Oh, that feels good. Ah, I like it. Oh, loving-kindness. Ooh, warm, cuddly. Oh, I feel very loving. That's not loving-kindness, it's just an emotion. Right? And likewise with compassion. We're not focusing on suffering. The object of mindfulness is not suffering. It's not blatant suffering, it's not the suffering of change, it's not egocentered suffering. It's sentient beings. It's sentient beings. The object of mindfulness of loving-kindness is sentient beings, focusing on a sentient being. May you find happiness in the causes of happiness. 
It's an I-thou relationship, subject-to-subject relationship. May you find something you've not found yet, a greater degree of happiness, of fulfillment. May you cultivate the causes of that which would lead to your heart's desire being realized. But it's focusing on individuals, human or otherwise. It's very important. right? And of course, it's an aspiration. And likewise for compassion, we're not focusing on suffering. If we were, I mean, I've been trained in logic, if you're focusing on suffering, then after a while you wouldn't have anything to focus on anymore because you want the suffering to go away. Right? No, you're not focusing on suffering. Not blatant suffering, not either of the other two kinds of suffering. When meditatively cultivating compassion, as in the case of loving kindness, the object of mindfulness is sentient beings. It can be yourself. You, you count. You're a sentient being. It can be animals, humans, any other kind of sentient being you like. But you're focusing on sentient beings, and while focusing on a sentient being, tending to the sentient being, then arousing this yearning, may you, the sentient being, may you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And so even when you imagine all the suffering has dissipated, you're imagining, venturing into that realm of possibility, and you're imagining all the suffering dissipating, you're still holding the focus, focusing on the sentient being, and now imagine that sentient being being free of suffering, experiencing that relief, the serenity, the peace, the gratification, Thank goodness that's over. So the beginning, middle, and end, you're always a focusing on a sentient being. And that can be yourself. Or it can be anyone else. It can be one, or it can be all sentient beings. Or anything in between. Okay? So, I'm nitpicking here a little bit, but it's not trivial. That was not just a scholar's exercise. So during this practice, when you're meditatively cultivating compassion towards sentient beings with respect to blatant suffering, we imagine, clearly and as completely as possible, the pain and suffering of others. In my own life, prior to being introduced to meditation, I have often lacked the capacity to imagine and empathize without quickly becoming overwhelmed. Very good point. As you can extrapolate, this presents a difficulty in practice as well. How should we proceed in response to the tendency of the mind to protect itself and create psychological walls? And this is from James. James, please identify. We've not met yet. Thank you. James, marvelous question. Very, very good question. I'm going to relate it to my own personal history. I, I think I'm not rambling. I hope not. But during the first year or two that I was trained, I was being very quite intense, intensely trained, receiving, uh, attending lectures from a marvelous geshe from 71 to 72, six days a week. And the geshe was going through the Lamrim, the stages of the path, according to Tsongkhapa, the Lamrim literature. Talking about compassion, this relates directly to your question. And how are to attend with single-pointed, open-heart, single-pointed attention on the suffering of others. And not just an individual here, or people suffering from an earthquake there, or people suffering from old age there, or just your loved ones, or what have you. But the heart is to open, especially in this Mahayana context, the ideal, the aspiration, is to open your heart to the suffering of all sentient beings. To really, white, no barriers, as you said, no psychological protection. Open your heart without barrier, without protection, to the suffering of all sentient beings. In Buddhism, you know that's vast. 
It's as vast as modern cosmology, but with a lot wider range of sentient beings, not only humans and animals, got all six realms of existence. And so when I heard about that, I just felt the concept overwhelming. Even hearing about it, overwhelming. Like, how could anybody open that much and not be just massively, massively, debilitatingly overwhelmed? So I asked this marvelous Geshe, Geshe Wantaige, that, you know, you speak about the perfection of generosity, the six perfections, perfection of generosity, of ethics, and so forth, that form the framework for the whole bodhisattva way of life, culminating in the perfection of wisdom. But I said, if one opens one's heart in this way, deeper and deeper, with greater intensity, greater realism, in other words, not abstraction, and you're experiencing other suffering as if it's your own, which is exactly what they're encouraging us to do, and you proceeded along the path to enlightenment with a greater and greater awareness, deeper and deeper awareness, clearer and clearer awareness of the suffering of all sentient beings. When you finally achieved Buddhahood, why would you not have achieved the perfection of suffering? Because now you're experiencing the suffering as if it were your own of all sentient beings. Why would you not now be the most miserable person in the entire universe? And his answer was, you can't, extrapolate, you can't extrapolate, extrapolate that way. It doesn't work that way. So now to answer your question. And he said it with a great big smile. That's not how it turns out. And it's, you've raised such a deep issue. I want to kind of go slowly, linger a little bit. That's not all you're doing. As you go deeper in your, in your path, in, in your practice, you evolve spiritually along the path. You're not just doing that, becoming more and more and more sensitive to the, the suffering of all sentient beings. If that's all you're doing, that's a very limited, too narrow, a groove for your spiritual practice. It's not balanced. In a balanced practice, where you're penetrating more and more deeply into the serenity of your own soul, the serenity of your own substrate consciousness. Tremendously peaceful, serene, and blissful as you're approaching that along the path of shamatha. On that basis, but also together with that, as you're cultivating insight, wisdom, and experiencing the bliss that arises from wisdom, from direct realization of non-self, direct realization of emptiness, let alone direct realization of rikpa, pristine awareness, Buddha nature. As you're cultivating those two, the bliss arising from samadhi, the bliss arising from wisdom, you're simultaneously cultivating deeper, deeper compassion, where you're more and more open to and sensitive to the suffering of others. And as I said a number of times already, for the moment what we attend to is reality. And if what you're really attending to with samadhi, with a complete unification of mind, is the suffering of others. It becomes real. It becomes really real. Right? But now look at this dynamic. It's hard to imagine, and frankly, we can't imagine it, but maybe we can imagine imagining it. Imagine in time-lapse photography that you're just tapping into the deeper, deeper, deeper resources by way of samadhi, into the bliss of your own consciousness, right to the substrate conscious and beyond. 
simultaneously you're tapping deeper, deeper, deeper into the bliss arising from wisdom as you're becoming lucid in the waking state as well as while dreaming. Simultaneously you're becoming more and more open to, sensitive to the suffering of others, but you're also cultivating loving kindness and attending to the possible, the, the realm of the possibility of all sentient beings being utterly free and enjoying the immutable bliss of enlightenment. And you're doing that all together in a rich fabric, a weave of the cultivation of loving kindness, compassion, the fusion in the cultivation of bodhicitta. But together with that, the cultivation of samadhi and its bliss, the cultivation of wisdom and its bliss, and it's all in one blender. It's all in your continuum. This is getting pretty inconceivable pretty quickly. That it's not just this or that. It's not just blissing out. It's not just achieving the perfection of misery and debilitating empathy. It's something we can't imagine. So the Dalai Lama was asked a number of years ago, he was asked, how is it that you are so happy? That's what everybody notices about you. Everybody, politicians, business people, everybody. Walk into the room, here's a really happy man. He's so light, he's cheerful, he laughs so easily, he's so at ease. He's a joyful man. He's a man that doesn't need to make, he doesn't need to wait for something to make him joyful. He's bringing joyfulness to the situation. He's really joyful. That's obvious. But somebody said, how do you pull that off? Because you're the Dalai Lama. And you've been working for 60 years now trying to restore human rights with the Tibetan people. Basic human dignity, human rights, alleviation of suffering, prison camps, torture, totalitarian oppressiveness for the people of Tibet. And you haven't succeeded. You've met with 60 years of frustration. And that's your prime directive as the Dalai Lama. That's your most important responsibility, serving that role, filling that role of Dalai Lama. He has a unique responsibility to Tibetan people, like no one else on the planet. And they're all looking to him, not anybody else. It used to be Dalai Lama, Penjan Lama. Penjan Lama, gone. Not Dalai Lama. So they're all looking at him. And this is his heart's desire. Now, where's the progress? Why aren't you miserable all the time? Because you failed for 60 years. With a good heart, for sure. But still, you failed. What should we say? You failed. There's no progress. It's getting worse these days. More oppression. More Tibetans. Now more than 30 immolating themselves. The Chinese com communist government calls them terrorists and oppresses them further. Why aren't you weeping all the time, Dalai Lama? And he said, wisdom. He said, wisdom. It balances. And then how do you sustain that wisdom in the face of reality and not just when you're cloistered? How do you sustain that? With samadhi. So by the time you have samadhi and you have wisdom, then you can open your heart to compassion infinitely and still be joyful. And frankly, I find that inconceivable. But there it is. It's true. So balance practice. The short answer is balance practice. Don't get overwhelmed. Don't get overwhelmed. And even within the medley, this joyous, magnificent quartet of the four measurables, if you start getting really heavy in compassion and you're falling to its false facsimile of just grief, 
even within that matrix, that little lovely quartet, the four musketeers or the four immeasurables, then one of the other immeasurables will come to its rescue, if you're skillful. And that is you fall into grief, the false facsimile of compassion, you're feeling overwhelmed, balance it out. You're only seeing one aspect of reality, you're not getting the whole picture. Balance it out with empathetic joy. Because empathetic joy is as as focusing on another aspect of reality. It's not going airy-fairy, it's not going la-di-da, blind faith or something like that. No, that's another aspect of reality. Aspects of reality that give rise to an enormous sense of satisfaction, of rejoicing, of delight, of sheer joy, empathetic joy. So then you balance between the two. Okay? All of Dharma is a balancing act. Okay? Very good. Wonderful question. I know it was a long answer, but I think it really deserved one. I hope it's not a waste of your time. Okay, back to question. That's from a podcast listener, and I'll just, I will say this for the podcast. We have 40 people in the room, and you've all, with considerable expense and taking big chunks out of your life and traveling and all of that, I feel have a real obligation to you. My primary obligation, my primary commitment is the people here in this room. It's not that I like you better than the people listening by podcast, but you've made this commitment, and the people at podcast at this time have not. So... I'm not accepting questions from podcasts. They may be marvelous questions. They may be incredibly important questions. But I can't do it. I feel I really must stay here and now. Okay? So that is for your benefit here in the room. And my apologies to the people in podcast, podcast land. But that is my decision. That we really have, we have a lot to do in eight weeks. And if I open this up to podcast, you're going to be four, 40 people out of who knows, 400? 800, I don't know. But you're, you've suddenly become the minority, but you're the people who are here now. And so I have an obligation to you, which I want to fulfill. So sorry for that, but that's the way it is. Time is limited. So go back to another one that is from the person here, and then just to punish me, I get a really long one. <laughs> okay. I, I, I jest, but it is a long one. My goodness. Okay. In fact, it's two long ones. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name the culprit... It is our dear friend Lakshmi. Right there. Okay, question one. Actually, what I'm going to do is read one question and then go back here, okay? And then if we still have time with 10 minutes, then I'll go to, to the second question on the back side. Okay, yesterday you mentioned that by developing shamatha, there can be some form of inner healing. Each quality of shamatha can be used to overcome one of the five obscurations. Each of the five jhana factors, to be precise, and it's got to be around here someplace. They might even have it on the, um, the website for Tanyapura. We did last year. But each of the five jhana factors, one by one, acts as an antibody or natural remedy for each of the five obscurations. I've all also heard from podcasts and other sources that during shamatha practice, our mental afflictions can go dormant. Yeah, not all of them, but yeah, it's very true. A lot of them do. When off the cushion, should the condition arise, the mental afflictions will arise. Yeah, they can be catalyzed. If you've gone very far along the path of shamatha, if you've achieved shamatha, as those who've achieved it claim, and, uh, and they're reporting, they're not just claiming it, uh, but they're reporting on their experience, that once you've achieved shamatha, access to the first jhana, if you meet a certain situation, it may catalyze a mental affliction, anger, envy, whatever it may be, 
if those have achieved shamatha, say, say, make this comment, that now that your mind is, has, has found such extraordinary balance, ease, stability, clarity, and overall balance, free temporarily of those, or at least dormant, those five obscurations being dormant, the report is that the mental afflictions arise much less frequently, and when they do arise, they arise with much less potency. They come, they're more like knock on your door rather than knocking the door down and, and running in. Okay? So the benefits are not confined just to the meditation cushion. There's definitely a spillover, a very, a very good uh, spillover into the in-between session. But it is still true that not a single mental affliction has been eradicated, and potentially any one of them could arise. Okay? And then it depends on what you do. So does that mean, the question continues, does that mean the qualities developed while achieving shamatha are only present during the practice. So I've just answered that. No, they're most evidently, they're most evident while you're on the cushion in the shamatha practice. But if the practice is going well, uh, just practicing properly, then the benefit should definitely spill over into the rest of your life. And not only the benefits of counteracting the mental fictions that are arising less frequently with less force, but also, what are we cultivating here? It's attention. Tending to, right? So I'm going to take a minute because I love words and I like to use them. I like to try to use them well. Attention comes from the Latin root to tend to, right? So if we're cultivating this six, eight, ten hours a day, cultivating this quality of tending to, which has a quality or the connotation of watching over, caring for, looking after our breath, space of the mind, contents, and so forth, but we're cultivating this quality of loose, clear, still, luminous attention. You're doing that on the cushion. And then you come off the cushion and you encounter someone. There's going to be a spillover. What kind of attention will you bring? The one you just cultivated. So as someone comes into your field of vision, comes into your space, how can you not be more attentive? That's what you've been cultivating all along. And as you are more attentive, other people become more real. Their facial expression, if they speak, the verbal intonation, what they're saying, body language. It's just like you've turned up the, the wattage, the luminosity, on the light bulb of your awareness. And everything's more vivid. Everything's, in a way, more real. Okay? Which means that, with that attentiveness, empathy should arise much more easily. Because empathy doesn't arise simply because we're not paying attention. And therefore, other people's joys and sorrows aren't real for us because we're not paying attention, or we're paying attention. Here's my, one of my favorite images. I presume many of you have, have seen, or at least know of, the comic strip which was made into movies of Peanuts. Peanuts, doesn't matter. But in Peanuts, it's a big, very well-known American comic strip. But I'm getting at just one point. In the Peanuts comic strip, there's one character called Pigpen. Pigpen, little boy. Pigpen. And that's because he's always dirty. He's a, he just doesn't wash his clothes. He's just filthy. And wherever he, wo walk, wa wherever he walks in this cartoon, he walks with a little globe of dust around his head. It's big. He just walks here and just that little globe of, you know, grunge, his own little local smog bin goes with him. Wherever he goes, there goes Pigpen. Oh, there goes Pigpen's halo, but it's a halo of grime, you know? That just strikes me as, that's so spot on. And that is when we're caught up in OCDD, we're pig pen. We may see other people through the filter, through the haze, the smog of, 
I like, I don't like, I want, I don't like, uh, I hope, I fear. I mean, I, me, mine, I, me, mine. Oh, hello, Maria. I, me, mine, I, me, mine, I, me, mine. Oh, hello, Regina. I, me, mine, I, me, mine, I, me, mine. What can you do for me? What might you do against me? What, what, what's going on? Shall I run or shall I run away or towards you? What shall I do? It's just all through the dust cloud of my mind. And I can't see anybody. I can only see you could be potentially harmful, you could be potentially beneficial, and so I'm going to push you away and bring you over. So there we are. Shamatha directly relates to empathy and compassion. Time running out, but don't you love the image? <laughs> oh, yeah. Could you explain what inner healing would mean here? Yeah, your mind being more balanced then it really is as if you've increased or you're bolstered, empowered your psychological immune system. And how do you do that? By eliminating that which is undermining your psychological immune system. And rumination does that big time. Shantideva, in his classic text, says that a person whose mind is distracted lives between the fangs of mental afflictions. So if you're right there, you know, and your mind is distracted. Then, and the things are just right there. They're kind of like yawning. And then all you need is a little catalyst. And you're, you're, you're in a lock. You're in the grip of mental affliction. It just needs a little whisker. And down come the teeth. And now you're carried away. Anger, craving, hostility, envy, whatever it is. So it means, what he's saying there is your psychological immune system is shot. It's like a person with, uh, what do they call it? HIV. You have HIV of the mind. Anything that comes along, you'll get it. And you'll get it bad. You know, that's if you have no shamatha practice at all, if your mind is simply distracted. But insofar as you're cultivating shamatha, the mind gets more balanced, the psychological immune system gets more robust, and even if you meet very difficult people, or you meet situations that would naturally arouse a lot of craving, or attachment, it doesn't come as, you, you don't get all the symptoms. You don't get so much caught in the grip. So I see you, you're one of those, I've encountered people like you before. I have just two questions, but the first has three parts. <laughs> I have to, this is a typically Indian quality. I, I've noticed this, I was at a conference in Sadhana years ago, and these bandits, there were hundreds of Indians and Tibetans and so forth in the room, and these bandits, they would get up and they would give whole discourses, you know, when they're supposed to be asking a question. And the moderator said, the moderator, especially speaking to the Indian bandits, he said, please, I ask each of you, ask only one question. Only one question. Don't give big statements. Only one question, please. We have only limited time. So the next Indian raises his hand. I'm telling you the truth. And he says, I have only one question. And it has five parts. <laughs> so I know where you come from, Lakshmi. <laughs> okay, so that's, and then the final part three of the first question. In the case of settling the mind in its natural state, could healing refer to experiencing slowly the empty nature of reality and self? Yes, but it's more to it than that. And that is what you're doing in this practice, and I'll keep this one for future, because there's a backside, is that it's not only that you will eventually realize emptiness one day, one day, you know, in the future, but rather in this practice, it is both epistemic, epistemic and therapeutic. And that is to say, as you're sustaining the flow of mindfulness of the space of the mind and its contents, how can you avoid not, how can you avoid having insight 
into the nature of the phenomenon you're observing so steadfastly, discerningly and clearly. So you're bound to gain insight into the mind just by watching it for so long. Like an astronomer that just spends you know, eight hours a night looking for a telescope. How can you not make some discoveries there? Even if you're not a highly trained astronomer and knowing what to look for, just looking will give something. And so it's epistemic. This is really a path of self-knowledge. But what's remarkable about this is by the sheer fact of observing in this way, without distraction, without grasping, your awareness holding its own space. You're not only observing the mind, you're observing the mind heal itself. Which is to say, as you're attending there, you'll see sometimes maybe angry thoughts arising. But as you attend to them, without distraction, without grasping, you'll see the angry thoughts of memory or what have you arising, and then because you're not cognitively fusing with it, grasping onto it, you see it and it's orphaned. It arises and just melts away. It releases itself. That's the Tibetan phrase in English translation. It releases itself. Likewise, one may kind of, kind of start constricting around some, some desire, some craving, and some craved object arises. A person, place, thing, whatever. And one sees, oh, there's some craving arising. But since you're not identifying with it, it arises, and then it heals. So you're watching your mind heal itself. And as it heals, as the knots disentangle, then the contents gradually melt, like a snow globe shaken up, and now settled, the little snowflakes come to settle in the bottom. The activities of the mind gradually subside, and the subjective awareness of the mind, so caught up in the coarse mind, conceptual mind, that also settles as your coarse mind dissolves into substrate consciousness and the space of the mind dissolves into the substrate. You're on a path of healing. So it's simultaneously a path of knowing and a path of healing. And that's prior to realizing emptiness. This is this finding, whoa, we already knew the body has an extraordinary capacity to heal, to mend broken bones, to abrasions, to ward off bacteria and viruses. We already knew that, quite splendid. But then we say, oh, the healing capacity is not confined to the physical body. There's a natural healing capacity of the mind as well. And then the big question is, how can we get out of the way so the mind can heal itself? How can we stop doing or engaging in all those habits that we've done in the past that have prevented the mind from healing? So this is a path of not doing, of getting out of the way, of discovery. Quite extraordinary. So all the power of this practice is what you are bringing to the practice. The practice isn't bringing it to you. It's certainly not the teacher bringing it to you. I have nothing to offer. It's just some words. But the power of the practice to, to heal, to balance your own mind that's coming from your own mind. And the method is just to help that happen. Good. All right. So we have page two tomorrow. And that's our first run-through of the settling the mind into the natural state. You know where we're going to tomorrow, but tomorrow is another day. Enjoy your evening. Enjoy your meal. See you soon.